History Helmet. This is the History Helmet Podcast, Episode 8, Tutankhamen. Hello, welcome to the History Helmet Podcast. This week, we're talking about Tutankhamen. Tutankhamun, depends how you say it, I suppose. Anyway, that guy who was the pharaoh of Egypt all those years ago. So, let's dive right in. The pharaohs of Egypt were kings, rulers of their country, and would do things like keep the peace, start wars, put the squeeze on their subjects for tax, make laws, and lay claim to everything in the land. They were also the spiritual leaders of the people, believed to be something like a liaison between the gods and the common folk. In this role, they would take part in religious ceremonies and strive to maintain a balanced cohesion. The first Egyptian pharaoh is believed to be a fella named Nama, also known as Menes, who was widely credited with unifying Egypt, bringing together the upper and lower Egypt under his rule. Nama died around 3000 BC and is the pharaoh who established the first dynasty. No, not the 1980s TV show with Joan Collins. Dynasties were basically ruling families. A family would try to hold on to the throne for as long as they could, usually passing power down from father to son or some other close relative. Eventually they'd be beaten by an enemy or nature, meaning that they couldn't produce an heir to carry on the bloodline. Someone else would grab the crown and start a new dynasty. There ended up being 30 dynasties. Nama, founder of dynasty number one, lived and died around 5,000 years ago. Today, we're going to be talking about Tutankhamun, who became pharaoh some 1,700 years after Nama, toward the end of the 18th dynasty. Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun, let's call him King Tut, was pharaoh of Egypt between the years 1332 and 1323, BC. That's 3,200 years ago, folks. Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun, King Tut, let's call him King Tut. King Tut became pharaoh, which in Egyptian means great house, in reference to the palace where the pharaoh lived, at the age of just nine years old. Tutankhamun's father, Pharaoh Akhenaten, is most famous for attempting to convert Egypt to monotheism, worshipping just one god. In the fifth year of his reign, he officially declared that all other deities, except for Aten, the sun disk god, ceased to exist. So he just said, you, over there, worshipping all those other gods, Ra, Anubis, stop worshipping those gods, worship this god, Aten. The very same year, he began a nationwide campaign to methodically erase all traces of traditional Egyptian gods. It seems that his biggest beef was with the god Ammon, and teams of stonemasons were sent to temples throughout the land to deface, hammer and chisel away at any symbols or words that had any connection to his name. Why did he do this? Well, he could have really liked Aten, the god, and wanted to honour him in the best way he knew how. Or, and more likely, it was to do with money and politics. 
The priests in Ammon's religious sect had been steadily growing in influence and political muscle for decades, to a point where their power now threatened to challenge that of the pharaoh Akhenaten himself. Akhenaten thought, well, I'm not, I'm not having that. So he protected his position by declaring that he was the son and sole prophet of Aten, and that all other gods were crap and useless. And if anyone wanted to pay tribute to Aten, they had to go through him. He basically created a monopoly on talking to God, and he was the only channel of access. He put the squeeze on the temples of the old gods, took control of their assets, and watched the money roll in. As was common practice in those days, Akhenaten had many wives, perhaps even as many as six. One of them was the famed beauty Nefertiti, and one of them was his own sister. Yeah, I know. You're the pharaoh of Egypt. You can have any woman in the land and you choose your own sister. But this was quite common among royal houses in ancient Egypt. Rules about who the pharaoh could marry were very strict, and he was practically encouraged to marry someone within his own family. Partly to promote the image that they were a living god, like in the story of the gods Osiris and Isis, who were married and were brother and sister. But also, they married family members to maintain the bloodline and keep outsiders out. Still, it's a bit weird. Archaeologists believe that they may have even found evidence when excavating Akhenaten's tomb to suggest that he fathered a child with his own daughter, Meketaten. Now that's just wrong. Akhenaten and his sister had a child, Tutankhaten, who would later change his name to Tutankhamun. Tutankhaten, later Tutankhamun, was a weedy and sickly child, born afflicted with numerous ailments. He wasn't going to be winning any most handsome future pharaoh contests, let's put it that way. Well, that's not really surprising when you consider the recessive gene pool from which he sprung. It is thought that he suffered from a curved spine, a cleft palate, a skull which hadn't fused together properly, he had a club foot, the left one, a degenerative bone disease, a weak immune system, large front teeth, an overbite, and a condition which resulted in his body developing various female characteristics, chief among these being enlarged breasts. Yep, man boobs. Some of the bones in his toes were actually already dead while King Tut was still alive. His burial chamber was found to house over a hundred walking sticks, crutches and canes. This was not a well dude. He would have spent a lot of his life in pain and is often depicted in the art of the time sitting or being carried. After 17 years as pharaoh, Akhenaten died. Or he may have abdicated. We just don't know what happened to him. Why don't we know? Well, Akhenaten's religious reforms, trying to get rid of all the other gods in Egypt, were very controversial, and people just didn't like being told who or what they could worship. Understandable. Akhenaten's attempts to change Egypt's faith system en masse made him an unpopular figure. So, after his death, 
monuments of Akhenaten were taken down, statues of his image were smashed, and his name was purposefully omitted from a list of kings made by later pharaohs. Basically, exactly what he had attempted to do to the god Amun years before. When Akhenaten's dynasty, the 18th dynasty, eventually collapsed, the new dynasty began a smear campaign of posthumous character assassination, not just of Akhenaten, but of the three pharaohs of his dynasty who succeeded him. From then on, the start of the 19th dynasty, Akhenaten was referred to as the enemy, or that criminal, in official records. After Akhenaten's death, two placeholder pharaohs reigned for a short time before the nine-year-old prince, still called Tutankhaten, took his rightful place on the throne. King Tut's first act as pharaoh was to take his father's mummified corpse from his tomb at Akhetaten, there's so many tartans, destroy his sarcophagus and have him reburied in the Valley of the Kings. Now, King Tut may have officially become king, but he was still only a boy. His youth, infirmity, and according to some, mental challenges, he may have had what we call today learning difficulties, made him quite unsuitable for the role of pharaoh. So, it's most likely he had someone overseeing his reign, at least in the early years. Because, as anyone who's ever met a nine-year-old knows, they probably aren't ready to engage in matters of international importance. An elder called Ai, that's A-Y or A-Y-E, who had also served King Tut's father, Akhenaten, took the role of vizier or high official, doing all the heavy lifting on state matters until King Tut was old enough to stand on his own two feet, one of which was a clubfoot, remember. As a living god, King Tut couldn't just be pushed off to some remote palace. He had to be seen by the people as the guy in charge. But, in fact, the guy in charge was I. And King Tut was kind of just a rubber stamp. I would tell King Tut what to do, and he would do it. Not I, I the vizier. I was helped out in this task of guiding the young king by the Egyptian army's top man, Horemheb, a well-respected military commander. Both these men, I and Horemheb, would one day be pharaoh themselves, immediately after King Tut. First I, then Horemheb. And perhaps with one eye on this time, they were eager to bring stability back to Egyptian society, after the upheaval caused by Akhenaten's religious reforms. These two future pharaohs, claiming to act on Tutankhamun's behalf, began a drive to roll back Akhenaten's moves to make Egypt worship the one god, Aten, and they reinstated the worship of the old gods, much to everyone's joy. In a complete U-turn on his father's attempt to establish a new capital, Amarna, meaning the horizon of Aten, King Tut changed the capital city back to Thebes, and ordered the rebuilding of important religious structures at Karnak, which was home to the great temple of Amun. That's just over the river from the Valley of the Kings. He commissioned works to begin in Luxor, Thebes, as well as embarking on projects to restore other temples across Egypt 
that had been plundered and laid waste by Akhenaten. Furthermore, a couple of years into his reign, no doubt on the sage advice of Ai and Horemheb, young King Tut renounced his religion, turned his back on the god Aten, and began worshipping the god Amun, who was known as King of the Gods. This resulted in a change of name from Tutankhaten, which means the living image of Aten, to Tutankhamun, meaning the living image of Amun. All these actions strengthened King Tut's reign and made his position as boy pharaoh more secure. I get it. He was trying to make amends for what his father had done, which made him look humble and wise in the eyes of his subjects. Yeah, probably a wise move. I and Horemheb also sought to address the decline in Egypt's standing in the region during Akhenaten's rule. He had put all of his energies into selfish projects and religious matters, leaving domestic and foreign affairs rather neglected. Egypt had been weakened politically and economically by Akhenaten's dereliction of duty. King Tut's diplomacy turned out to be largely effective, especially with regards to relations with Mitanni to the north. But there is evidence of conflict during his lifetime, with the Nubians to the south and the Asiatics to the east. Battles were fought over the usual gripes, land and trade routes. King Tut would have received military training and battle dress was discovered in his tomb, but because of his condition, it's unlikely that he would have actually seen any action. And there you pretty much have it. No great shakes as a pharaoh. Ten years on the throne... And as pharaohs go, he was fairly forgettable. He spent most of his time undoing the actions of his father and feebly trying to make Egypt great again. He was a kind of puppet pharaoh under the watchful eye and firm control of Ai and Horemheb. Pharaoh Tutankhamun died at the age of 19 and was the last of his family line. During his brief life, he had done the kingly thing and married his half-sister, Ankhesenemun. They tried to produce male heirs, but sadly the two daughters they had together are both believed to have been stillborn. So just how did King Tut die? The most plausible explanation is that he succumbed to gangrene, an infection brought on from a broken leg, and that this, coupled with according to DNA samples taken from his mummy, numerous malaria infections was just too much for the frail king. So most of the information we have about King Tut was taken from scans of his mummy and um, DNA samples, as we've said. So the, the mummification process, the reason why they were able to find out so much about him, is because of the mummification process. Um, from start to finish, the process of mummification took more than two months to complete. It was carried out by specially trained priests who, as well as knowing the right prayers and ceremonial details, needed a good working knowledge of human anatomy. First, the brain was removed, not lifted out of the skull, but dragged out, bit by bit, through the nostrils, 
using a specially designed hooked tool. Then all the organs would be taken from the chest and abdomen, usually through a slip made on the left side of the abdomen. The heart was not taken out though, as Egyptians believed that the heart was where a person's wisdom, intelligence, memories, emotions, the soul and very personality resided. All the other organs would be placed for storage in special containers called canopic jars, which were buried with the mummy. Then, in an attempt to remove all the moisture from the corpse, the embalmers would liberally douse it with a salt called natron, also used in cooking, medicine, farming and glassmaking at the time, and placed packets of this salt inside the body too. Once the corpse had dried out, the embalmers would gently wash it, fill in any sunken areas with linen and bandages, and then begin the wrapping. Hundreds of feet of linen would be wound around each mummy. Sometimes the fingers and toes were individually wrapped before wrapping a whole hand or foot. Small good luck talismans were placed inside the layers of the linen, like candy inside a parcel in a game of parcel parcel. Prayers and magic incantations were written on the linen itself. At various stages of the process, the bundled body was covered with a warm glue-like substance before adding more layers of linen. At last, a final shroud was wrapped around the body and held in place with strips of linen. As for the tomb, or house of eternity, as they were called, work would begin on construction long before there was actually a mummy to put in it. These tombs would take years to build, as expert builders, architects and stonemasons all had to be mindful of the ceremonial rites they were expected to perform during the building, as well as the time it took to carve rock, basically. No machines, remember. The builders also had to follow strict instructions, making sure that the tomb was built in the right place, facing the right direction, met the design requirements, and was made from the right raw materials. The vast majority of tombs were composed of at least two basic elements, namely a burial chamber, kind of goes without saying, and a mortuary chapel. The burial chamber would be constructed underground and was intended to be a sanctified resting place for both the body and spirit of the deceased. The mortuary chapel was built overground and was a kind of visitor centre for those who wished to pay tribute, say prayers, perform religious rites, or leave the deceased their favourite food and drink. Another interesting architectural element to these chapels was an artificial doorway, which would either be painted on top of or carved into the rock. These doors were meant to act as a portal from the realm of the dead to that of the living, allowing the spirit of the deceased to come and go as they pleased, collect their offerings, and head back to the afterlife, or Aru, as the Egyptians called it. The afterlife, they believed, was an exact mirror image of one's own life on earth, where you enjoyed paradise for all eternity. Size and prominence of the tombs mostly depended on your standing during your lifetime. The Great Pyramid at Giza, for example, was built in 2589 BC, 
to accommodate the sarcophagus of the all-powerful King Khufu. Tutankhamun's contribution to Egyptian royal history, however, warranted slightly less grandeur. But how do you compete with a bloody Great Pyramid anyway? Tutankhamun was buried in the Valley of the Kings. Now, the Valley of the Kings lies in the ancient necropolis, necropolis meaning city of the dead in Greek, basically a large cemetery, at Thebes. This was the one-time capital of ancient Egypt, called Thebes by the Greeks, but known as Wasat by the Egyptians. Thebes is a fair distance, almost 500 kilometres, about 300 miles, away from the Great Pyramid at Giza. And it was here that for almost 500 years, between the 16th and 11th centuries BC, tombs were dug out of the rock for the pharaohs and other important nobility connected to the 18th, 19th and 20th dynasties of ancient Egypt. The ancient name for the Valley of the Kings was the great and majestic necropolis of the millions of years of the pharaoh, life, strength, health, in the west at Thebes, quite a mouthful. It has been the go-to place for archaeologists eager to make a name for themselves since the late 1700s and has yielded so much bounty for historical research. The valley is located on the west bank of the River Nile, opposite modern-day Luxor. There is an eastern valley, where most of the royal tombs have been found, and a western valley, known as the Valley of the Monkeys. Because King Tut had died so young, and perhaps with very little warning, his royal tomb would not have been ready. And as a result, it was not quite as grand as it might have been had there been more time. His mummy was actually put into a tomb that had been intended for someone else, so as to adhere to the tradition of 70 days between death and internment. After the burial, time passed, and the exact spot of the tomb was forgotten. This was partly due to a change of dynasty 30 years after King Tut's death, a dynasty which actively sought to discredit and stigmatise Akhenaten and those of his clan who had succeeded him. But it was also because other tombs were being built in the same area, and the detritus from those projects gradually covered up the entrance and buried the tomb. Now, Aside from a couple of grave robbers pilfering oils and perfumes from the tomb soon after the burial, and the repair work done to the tomb by workmen after the raids took place, the tomb of Tutankhamun remained undisturbed and undiscovered for a period of 3,200 years. Kind of hard to get a handle on that period of time. That many years, all those generations. So... While Tutankhamun's body, his mummy, lay in the darkness, Troy fell, Rome was founded, Egypt herself capitulated to the Persians, Confucianism was born, Buddhism began, Alexander the Great conquered the known world, Christianity sprung up, Rome fell, Islam rose and spread across the Middle East, Gunpowder was invented. A plague killed a third of Europe's population. The slave trade started. The Americas were reached and colonised. 
Shakespeare wrote his plays. The slave trade was abolished. The Wright brothers flew the first aeroplane. And a world war was fought, bringing death and carnage on a scale that would have been unimaginable to Tutankhamun or anyone of his time. So now we arrive at the early 20th century. It's 1922, and 30-year veteran of Egyptian excavation, British archaeologist Howard Carter, has for seven years been tirelessly scouring the Valley of the Kings with a fine tooth comb, searching for the tomb of Tutankhamun. His patron, George Herbert, a.k.a. Lord Carnarvon, is fed up with bankrolling Carter's fruitless digs and is about to pull the plug on the whole operation. On November 4th, a boy, whose job it was to fetch water for the digging team, was sleepily stabbing the sand with a stick when he came across a single stone step. He beckoned Carter, who excitedly redirected digging, to that spot. By dusk the next day, an entire staircase leading to a sealed door had been unearthed. Carter had found the entrance to a passageway, which led to the four rooms that made up King Tutankhamun's tomb. Further excavation would uncover an antechamber, possibly a mortuary chapel, the burial chamber itself, an annex and a treasury. This was a monumental find, as it was thought that all the royal tombs in the area had been discovered and cleared. Carter immediately telegrammed Lord Carnarvon in England, who jumped on a ship bound for Egypt and arrived two weeks later. On November 26th, and with Lord Carnarvon by his side, Carter made a small hole in the doorway to the antechamber. He actually did this with a chisel that had been given to him by his grandmother for his 17th birthday. This is how Carter recorded the event in his diary. With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. Widening the hole a little, I inserted the candle and peered in. At first, I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber, causing the candle to flicker. Presently, details of the room emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, Yes, wonderful things. Yeah, <laughs> a shitload of gold and treasure is what he saw. But, methodical and businesslike, Carter spent the next three months clearing the antechamber, systematically logging and removing its contents. It wasn't until February 1923 that the burial chamber itself was opened. This was where the sarcophagus lay. Inside the sarcophagus was the solid gold coffin of Tutankhamun, and inside that was Tutankhamun's death mask, probably placed on 
the shoulders of the, the mummy. Now this is one of the most recognisable pieces of art in the world ever. It's that gold head and shoulders depicting King Tut with the blue stripes of a headdress and a long beard on his chin. It's thought that because of King Tut's sudden death, this death mask was actually intended for someone else. If you look at it, it has pierced ears. Now, yes, Egyptian men used to have pierced ears, but only as children. It was more women who would have had pierced ears in later life. So this death mask depicting King Tutankhamun could have been made for someone else. And if you look even closer at it, you can see where the face meets the headdress, there's evidence of a kind of soldering. The death mask weighs about the same as a bowling ball, just over 22 pounds or 10 kilos. But it is as delicate as butterfly wings, a fact that was demonstrated in 2014 when the beard part was accidentally knocked off during work on the relic. It was hastily but carefully glued back on. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. What, what do you do when you've, you've damaged one of the world's greatest artefacts? <laughs> Who do you tell? <laughs> so the tomb yielded a vast hoard of treasure and artefacts that had been meant to go with King Tut to the afterlife. The story of Tutankhamun's funeral and his journey onwards to paradise was told in murals painted onto the walls of the chambers. Oils, perfumes, probably left behind by the thieves as they could only carry so much, childhood toys, priceless jewellery and statues of gold were everywhere you looked. There was even a dagger made of iron, something of an anomaly for the time, the most common metal for daily use in Egypt was copper, and iron metallurgy did not really get going in Egypt until a few hundred years after King Tut died. Anyway, after careful study and x-rays, this dagger was found to have been fashioned from a meteorite. Carter and his team spent the next 17 years attentively exploring the four-room tomb, uncovering cataloging and removing a total of 5,398 items, including thousands of objects of immeasurable value. Now, who got to keep all this plunder? Well, perhaps rightfully, the Egyptian government had automatic ownership of the contents of any tomb discovered. Carter, an old hand, would have known this better than anyone, and it is for this reason that he is suspected by some of making it appear that the tomb had already been robbed. A staged break-in blamed on burglars 3,000 years earlier. Under the veil of this mythical heist, Carter is alleged to have smuggled out hundreds of objects from the tomb, which were shipped to Lord Carnarvon's country estate in England. Interestingly, in 1988, the Egyptian government made moves to recover a collection of more than 300 artefacts found stashed inside a sealed cupboard at Highclere Castle, the ancestral home of Lord Carnarvon in England. 
By the way, if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, this is the place where it's filmed. That massive building with the flag flying, that's Lord Carnarvon's ancestral home. That's where they found these objects from the tomb of Tutankhamun. However, Lord Carnarvon's descendants claimed that the items, many of which were of great value, were given to Lord Carnarvon fair and square by the Egyptian government under an agreement which divided up ancient loot found in tombs between themselves and the Carter-Carnarvon cohort. An agreement which the Egyptian government say never existed. Regardless, the magnitude and importance of Tutankhamun's bling is without parallel, because his tomb was one of only a handful of ancient burial chambers to be discovered virtually untouched and intact. The contents of the tomb provided archaeologists with a prodigious amount of information about the life of a pharaoh in ancient Egypt, and made King Tutankhamun the most famous pharaoh of them all. So it's kind of ironic that the only reason he is known so well is because he was forgotten so quickly back then. He kind of wins by default. Like if suddenly 99% of all recorded music was wiped from existence in some global cataclysm, and then years into the future, someone finds a bunker full of Coldplay records. Talking of curses on the modern world, there are many, many stories about how the tomb of Tutankhamun was protected by powerful dark magic, which reached out across the millennia and brought its wrath to bear on those who had dared to disturb the eternal sleep of an Egyptian king. Absolute bullshit, of course, but there are always people willing to believe in such things. The curse of the pharaohs was given life by newspapers reporting on the discovery of the tomb who were keen to increase their sales with real-life stories of the supernatural. The most famous victim of the supposed curse was Lord Carnarvon himself, who died of pneumonia five months after the tomb was discovered. But Carnarvon had already had a weakened constitution when he got involved with excavating in the first place. A car accident 20 years before the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb had left Lord Carnarvon in poor health, and his doctors suggested warmer climes might do him some good. So, he travelled to Egypt and became fascinated with the whole field of Egyptology. Carter, surely the most worthy recipient of a mummy's curse, died 17 years later from cancer. That's a pretty slow-working curse, isn't it? Lord Carnarvon's daughter, who entered the tomb with her father and Carter, managed to avoid the curse for a further 57 years, dying at the age of 79 in 1980. So what about now? There is still an immense amount of interest in Tutankhamun and his treasure. Carefully selected artefacts from his burial chamber have been around the world, wowing punters in museums from London to Lahore. Between 1972 and 1979, the Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibitions drew crowds of millions who were all dying to get a glimpse of the unlikely superstar pharaoh's pile of riches and personal possessions. These days, 
Many of the objects from the tomb, including the gold burial mask, are deemed too fragile or valuable, insurance and the like, you know, to leave Egypt. And that is where you have to go if you want to see them with your own eyes. Tutankhamun's money, money, his mummy, <laughs> his mummy is still on display within the tomb where it was laid to rest 3,200 years ago. Though now, instead of a solid gold coffin, it is displayed in a glass box with a constant temperature of a cool 20 degrees Celsius. King Tut's tomb is known as Chamber KV-62, KV for King's Valley, and 62 because it was the 62nd tomb to be discovered there. To see the golden death mask, you have to go to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. But later this year, to mark the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the tomb, the Tutankhamun collection will be rehoused in the Grand Egyptian Museum, or GEM, which should open its doors to the public in November. Okay, that's it for this week. See you next time.